to take the Word of God and turn to Ephesians chapter number 6 this morning. Ephesians chapter number 6. That may surprise some of you. I hate, I hate to disappoint, but we're taking a little different direction this morning. For those of you visiting, we've been over the past year to a year and a half just making it the, the meat of the preaching to work through the book of Mark, and that's where we were last week. Um, and then on occasion, briefly, we'll take excursions, short series, or just a simple sermon for uh, pastoral concerns to address issues that need to be addressed in the community and the culture and the church. Um, and this is one of those, something that I've really felt I needed to preach over the past few months, but um, the Lord in some ways just didn't give the liberty to do that. Um, but earlier this week, just um, Tuesday, just compelled through my own Bible study and reading um, that this was something that we needed to revisit. Um, you know, the course of a couple of years ago, we spent a great deal of time on the family. We talked about the role of husbands, we talked about the role of wives, we talked about the role of fathers, mothers, children, and just spent a great deal of time painting the picture of a biblical home. Some of you weren't here for that, many of you were, and I hope that you were blessed, but um, family life is one of those things that I'm convinced that needs to be revisited quite often. And thus, we need to make time, whether it's uh, on a Sunday morning or in a Bible study, uh, to continue to address the issues of family life um, and what family life should look like and what family life looks like even within the church. Um, so this morning, I want to preach to you out of Ephesians chapter number six and reemphasize some things that we've emphasized in former days. That maybe we've forgotten, maybe we haven't. Um, but I pray that it will be a help to you this morning as we refresh our responsibility um, within the home, and particularly in relationship to our children. So if you will and are able, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll pick up our reading in Ephesians chapter number 6, verse number 1. Um, you read these words, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the, in the training and admonition of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, again, we need you. Um, I don't know what else to say. We simply need you. We need your presence, Father. We need your power. We need you to take the word of God. Um, to the depths of our heart, Father. Lord, we need you to transform us by the renewing of our mind, Father, so that we may know what is that perfect, good, acceptable will of God. Um, Father, we need to know what you require of us. We need to know what you demand of us, Father. And we need the joy of Christ in it all. And we need to know, Father, that your commandments are not burdensome. And we need to know, Father, that um, uh, of the grace that you've extended to us in Christ and that that slavery, that slavery to Christ, Father, is not like chattel slavery of the world. Um, Father, we need to know that we were bought with a price, and thus we're to serve God with our bodies, with our minds, with our whole spirits. We need to know that the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with everything that we are, Father, and that, um, and that when you give us your spirit, 
and those purchased on, on, on your behalf for us by the very blood of Jesus Christ, Lord. And we need to know that that spirit is within us, working and operating in a mighty way to make us more like your son. And Father, we need um, you this morning to make yourself known to us. We need more than just words and methods, Father. Um, we need the grace of Christ extended to us once again, Father, maybe not in a, in a saving way, if we're already um, birthed into the family of God, but in a sanctifying way, Father. We need to, to be set apart. We need to know your will. We need to know what you require of us, Father, and we need to love it. So Lord, would you help us to love the truth this morning? May it be like honey upon our lips. May it be more precious to us than gold or silver or any fine stone. Father, may we find rest in Christ today and even rest in the work that he's given us to do because of the energizing power of the word of God accomplished by the spirit of God. So Lord, use the spirit and the word in whatever way in our hearts this morning as you so desire. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, the emphasis this morning will be upon that fourth verse. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Why are you a father? And again, this is going to be particularly um, addressed to fathers, but, but that doesn't mean this morning that you as a young man who's single or you as an older man who's um, an empty nester um, or you as a, a wife or you as a single woman um, can just set aside the Word of God um, this morning because it doesn't necessarily pertain to you. Um, what I need for you to understand is that not only do fathers have the primary um, role in raising up children, but I need for you to know um, that all of you have a role in it as well. And we'll look at that a bit later as we look at the church's responsibility in some sense, um, even in the training of men and women um, within the context of the, the local church. But the primary audience this morning would be fathers. And that's what Paul says. Paul addresses that particular command to fathers. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't allow for um, the mother and to lay aside any responsibility or duty. It doesn't mean that it's 100% on him and nothing from her. Uh, but as, they, as he just expounded in chapter number five, that they are one flesh, this unit, and that his husband and wife are coming together. They are, to, they are to love one another, to submit to one another in what God has required of each of them. Husbands leading and husbands loving like Christ loved the church and, and wives submitting to their husbands in the fear of the Lord as unto the Lord. Um, and that this is the purpose of God in the relationship of marriage, and that is to be transferred in some sense to the children. Um, so the responsibilities there are laid out for husband and for wife, and we don't have all the time in the world this morning to go into that, um, but just to say that as a precursor, and we'll say that at the end probably as well, that probably the greatest thing, men, that you could ever do for your children is love your wife. And the greatest thing that you could ever do for your children, ladies, is love your husbands. And as that gospel is manifested to them in the relationship um, that you live out, displaying the very character and nature of God, it will be used as a means of transformation in your children's lives. But for the initial portion, um, this is to fathers. And maybe it's because I'm a father. Maybe it's because over the past month or 
two months or three months or years or since I um, became a father, became a husband. It's been such a journey on my part. Coming from a home that was broken, never having a father, never seeing what a marriage ought to be. I remember modeling my marriage after family um, uh, that, uh, of in-laws and because I had no idea as a young man what a father should be, what a, what a mother should be, what a, what a husband should be, what a wife should be. Uh, my father left at the age of three or four, and I could count on two hands exactly how many times um, he darkened the doors um, up until the day that he died some years ago. Um, multiple families within my um, immediate family always ended up in divorce, full of alcoholics, full of drug addicts, um, no representation of Christ. So as I enter into marriage, I don't have a clue. I don't know what I'm doing, you know. And God has been so gracious and so patient with us as He does each of us. You know, at whatever level that we enter into the relationship that God has ordained for us um, within the Christian life, none of us arrive perfectly. Um, but God graciously and patiently takes His Word by His Spirit and brings us up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in some sense. And he was gracious with me, and he still is, as he continues to teach me what a father is. And that question just provoked my heart in thinking this, this week. And it provoked that, and I want to provoke you. What is a father? Or why are you a father? Have you ever really thought about that question? I thought about it more and more over the years. I I sat with someone the other day as we talked about marriage and we talked about pre-marriage counseling and purposes and goals and marriage and the direction of marriage. And it's interesting that in the beginning, again, I had no clue what I was doing or where I was going. And there was little to no talk even as a young Christian and marrying a young Christian girl about um, any of the details of marriage, even from a Christian perspective. Marriage counseling was practically null and void in the congregation that I was part of. We met with our pastor once, but to boil it down, it was a questionnaire that we both filled out to see if we were on the same page. And for the most part, we were. But it was mostly superficial questions that asked the what of marriage and not so much the why, one of which was along the lines of having children. And the question was, do you want to have kids? Yes. How many? Who knows? You know, we didn't have a clue. We knew that we wanted to, but that was about it. But there was never a theology of having children. There was never a theology of marriage. There was a desire to make sure that we were on the same page to be unified, but there was never a question of whether we were actually on the right page. The same page may be unified around this purpose, on the same page of moving in this direction, but there was never really a question about whether we were on the right page. You can be on the same page in marriage and be on the wrong page. But Christians, you know... Um, and it was assumed that we would just have children and from a Christian perspective that that was a good thing. Now, Christians should have children because children are a blessing, they say. End of story. I really didn't even begin to ask the question until we had had multiple children. Um, and people just thought we were lunatics. You know, as we reached and breached three, four, and five, and six, I mean, we're just, we should be institutionalized by that point. Um, but it provoked me to start asking the question, um, why not? And why have children anyway? I remember asking a young girl just a few months ago. She was probably in her early 20s, just graduated college. And she asked me how many children I had, and I told her. And, and she just wide-eyed in astoundment and wondered why. And then I just asked the question, you know, um, why have children anyway? And she agreed. What's the point of having children anyway? 
from a secular perspective, what's the point? Why have them? I mean, they're just a burden, right? I mean, they just take away from the career. They take away from the life that you could have had. Thus, more and more young people are growing up from a secular perspective and not seeing the point in having children. Let me just say, if they're right, then they're right. You know, if God is not a reality, then what's the point? God doesn't require anything of us and doesn't have a purpose in it, then, then why in the world would you, um, would you take that route? And of course, I disagreed with her, but from a secular perspective, I totally um, saw her point. But children are hard. They're difficult. They consume at least 18 years of your life and actually more than that. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 6 lays down even mandates for grandparents and their responsibility to the training up of their grandchildren that it may not be fully as hands-on for the first 18 years, but you are, you, are, you are dedicated to those children for the rest of your life. So why have children when I don't have to? And I can live my life a bit more carefree without a burden. And I can focus on me. From a natural perspective, it seems legitimate. So why, why have children? Why, why be a father? What is a father? What is a husband? What is he supposed to do? How will he be judged? You know, not only what should you have children, but why be a father? And only if you are, and if you are a father, what is required of a father? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever searched through the Old Testament? Have you ever searched through the New Testament as you enter into marriage and you enter into that baby being born and you search out the scriptures desiring to know what God requires of you? I never did. You know, not whenever I was getting married, not whenever I was having children. It just seemed like the Christian thing to do. It seemed like they were a blessing. It seemed like they would be a blessing to me. I'm not knowing. Man, how much of a fool was I? You know, it's like buying a house or a car without reading the paperwork or knowing what the demands will be of you. And then the first bill arrives and you wonder whether or not you can make it, you can make the payment. But it's even greater than that. Now they send you home with this, this, this newborn human being with no little to no training. <laughs> and they say, here you go. And you go home and you wonder what in the world is required of me. Or do you? You just figure it out as, as you go. Your Proverbs 29, 18 says, without a vision, the people perish. And I remember years ago preaching that, uh, that text on a New Year's Eve uh, sermon uh, for the new year, and I went to that text, and I thought this will be great for the new year. And as I got to study in the text, I, I had to I had to repent of my original intent on that sermon and preach the text as it was supposed to be preached. It doesn't mean that you need to have a big vision for the church or for the ministry. And if you don't, then the people won't know where they're going. The idea is is that without the revelation of God, the people are without restraint. That without the boundaries of God's word and his revelation, we have no clue and no morality and no not what no have no clue of what to do. Without revelation, there is no restraint. No restraint. Um, and you do not know what is required of you, and that's what you'll be judged by. So we judge and gauge fatherhood and children and the raising of children with this um, substandard of what seems good to us and what seems right. Can't tell you how many times I've taken the children by myself to the store, you know, and have six little ducklings in a row, and everyone looks at me and they say, Oh, what a good father. And I just roll my eyes in my heart and, and I say, Man, what a substandard we have. 
And it's because in our culture, what we've done is we've taken the fatherhood role and we've taken the role of a husband. And if you watch um, sitcoms in the 80s and 90s, what they've done is they've made the, the, the man of the house a buffoon. He's comic relief. Little to nothing is expected of him. The wife is the one who labors and she does all the work and she, she, she cleans the house and she takes care of the children all while he goes to work to try to get out of it for eight hours and steals from the company to come home and to be the comic relief. And what we have in today is, is, is a substandard and no expectations for what a father is and for what a father should be. Thus, I take my six children to the, to the store and what they don't know is that, 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 that I almost lost it about a hundred times um, because they were this or that and I got frustrated and selfish and I had to repent when we got back out into the van and say I'm sorry to the children and they had to say sorry as well. Um, but the reason that it looked so great to other people is because it's not so common because we have such a low expectation and standard for what fatherhood should be. Thus, we think that these men are superheroes that do even the, the lowest of and most mundane of even tasks. Um, so what, you know, so people may look at you and may look at me and say, it's a good father, but, 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 but it, may, it means nothing, nothing. Or it may mean nothing on that day. The question is not what do they think about me, but what does God's word require of me? What does God require of me as a father in relationship to my wife and into my children? You know, definitions mean something. Um, we just don't know what most of the definitions are anymore. It's the same with God's character. It's the same with terms like love. Today, you're, you're, you're provoked to love everyone. And most of the culture and even us have no idea what love is. You say, I love you and I love my wife and I love my children. When you say that, what do you mean? What's the biblical definition of love? You ever thought about that before you say something like, I love pickles or I love football or I love this or, or that? 1 Corinthians chapter number 13 gives us the definition of love. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of angels and men, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have given the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, although I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and he goes on. Verse number four, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Have you ever... Live that out with your wife. When you say I love you, do you mean that? Do you mean, honey, I suffer long with you and I'm kind. I don't envy you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not selfish today and I'm not jealous of the things that you have and what you, you don't. You know, um, love does not parade itself. I'm not, uh, it's not puffed up. It's not prideful. I love you. It's, it's not only in relationship to her, but to me. Love does things. Love sets aside. Love sacrifices. Love is unconditional. Love is committed. Love doesn't seek its own good, but it seeks the good of others. It endures all things. When you say love, do you mean that? Definitions are everything. Because at the end of the age, when we stand before God, um, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment that this is the definition by which you will be judged. As a father, as a mother, as a child, as a church member, as a brother, as a sister, as a person in Christ, um, God gets to set the terms. God sets the boundaries 
Thus, it would be very wise for us before we enter into any relationship or any, um, any commitment to understand what is required and demanded and commanded of us. So what is a father? I ask again, what is a father? You say you have children, then I'm asking, what are you? And on that great day when you stand before God and I stand before God and He judges us, faithful or unfaithful, um, it doesn't matter how many little ladies at Walmart tell me how great I am or how many people in the church come up and pat me on the back. What will matter the most is what God said and what He required of me. And will I be found faithful or will I be found unfaithful? First and foremost, I think a father, I believe a father is a servant. You see that, in, and that's what he said, fathers. This is to fathers, Ephesians chapter number 6. Yeah, first and foremost, he's a servant. He's the leader of the home, but he leads in service. John chapter 13 paints a picture of Christ, right? If we are to be like Christ and love our brides like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, then it is incumbent upon us as men um, to carry with us an authority, but it's an authority that is, that is bound up in service, that you have been given the authority, men, to serve. That's where your authority lies. It's in service, according to God's word. That you are to live for your wives and children and you are to die for your wives and children. You see, people fear authority because it often becomes tyrannical. That's why we love a democracy. We love the idea of equal authority because it protects ourselves from the abuse of authority. When in reality, biblical authority is not and should not be feared, but respected. In another sense, it is to be feared. It's to be feared. I'm afraid of it. Why? Because the call to a position of authority demands my life. Again, so many people have a hunger for authority because power is an idol of the day. They love it. But from a biblical perspective, authority comes with great responsibility and is never to be used for self-exaltation. The power is to be used according to God's Word for the benefit of those who are under their care. There is a real authority that comes with a husband. And there is a real um, submission that comes with a wife. But when done according to the biblical principles, the husband's decision can always be trusted because of the character that he has and the purpose in which he does it, which is for the good and the glory of God and the good and the benefit of the family. This is why a wife and children can become subject to such a man because he has the type of character that a wife and children can trust. And when he makes decisions, when you make decisions, men... Do your wives follow because they know that this decision was made for God's glory and for her good? If not, why? Does she question whether it's for her benefit or for yours? Are you utilizing your authority to be self-serving and self-exalting and to push and to promote your own gain? Let me tell you what marriage is. Marriage is, is, a, is an invitation to die, man. I was listening to Paul Washer this week. And he has a way to put things. He says, it's in a sense like this. And when you come to Christ, you die. You die to self. And then after you come to Christ and you marry, it's almost as if you've died again, man, a deeper death. Because not only have you died in Christ, but you die to self. You died to serve, to serve her, to give the rest of your life for this person. 
unified together, has become um, together, and you've given, and, and now there's this mandate, this commitment upon your life as you covenant together for God's glory to, to represent the gospel in such a way that you image Christ to her and to your children and to the world. And the greatest image of that was the man Christ Jesus who gave His life on Calvary for her good. That marriage is an invitation not to be worshipped by another person, but to die upon an altar of service for the sake and the good of that other human being. And then when you have children, it's almost as if you die a deeper death. Um, because now you die to serve them. Now you've devoted yourself, men, whether you believed it or not at the time, or you went into it knowing um, anything about it at all. You've committed yourself to these little human beings, whether it's one, five, or ten. Um, to be something for them. To do something for them. To commit yourself for their good and for God's glory for the rest of your life or for the rest of, of theirs. That authority is not a Caesar type of tyrannical mentality. You don't go home and kick your feet up as the king of the house and everyone bows down because you're home. No, men, most of the time you will work 8, 10, 12 hours a day and you will go home and the work begins. And this is life. And it's hard. But it's glorious. And it's good. But at the same time, if you are the type of man that you ought to be, the type of man that God requires and carry the character in which you've won the love of your wife and children, and there will be no doubt that they will reciprocate that love and serve you for the rest of their days. And this is what marriage is. It's not coming together with this compatible people, you know, to where we can worship one another. It's an invitation to love. Everyone wants it easy. Everyone wants it, you know, just paved out with a red carpet. I just didn't know. I don't know how many people I've talked to. I just didn't know marriage was going to be this hard. Um, I didn't either. But at the same time, I didn't know that God would cultivate such love in my heart for her or for them, you know? Um, that otherwise I would have never. Everybody wants 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 peace, and they want and they want um, just 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 everything easy, and they want comfort, and they want pleasure, and that's understandable, and that's fine from a natural perspective. Pain is not something that is desirous, but at the same time, in those type of environments, um, where is the opportunity to truly love? You know. When God invites you, when, when you commit yourself to marriage and you commit yourself to children, when you come together in covenant as a church, you know, there's going to be difficulty, there's going to be pain, there's going to be hard days, there's going to be offense, but at the same time, it's in those environments in which love is cultivated, reconciliation is seen, forgiveness is present and made and committed to, and the glories of Christ are displayed to us and to the world because it's only in those environments that those things flourish. flourish. It's only there, you know, Peter rejoices in trial and tribulation. Why? Because it's only there that certain attributes, character, and, and, and certain um, uh, fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in which you know Christ more and you display His character to the world in a mighty, mighty way. So many men long for the glory of battle. That's easy. It would be somewhat easy if someone walked in this morning with a gun and opened fire. Man, we would know what to do. And we would jump at the, at the opportunity, I think, most of us to stand 
in the gap for a little one or for our wives, for anyone in the congregation. That's easy. You know what's not easy? Dying for her and for them every day while living and performing the responsibilities that God requires of me, following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We as men are often selfish. We're served by our mothers from the time that we're born until the time that we leave the home. And when we get married, it's almost as if we expect another mother to get married and to be served and to marry a mom. Most men don't marry someone to die for every single day. When God called me to marriage, whenever I committed myself to it, God called me to serve a woman for the rest of my life in a unique way. It doesn't matter what she looks like. It doesn't matter how she acts. It doesn't matter what medical conditions she has. It doesn't matter. Later, God called and gave us children. It didn't matter how they came out of the womb, you know? It didn't matter if they had defects. It didn't matter if they had, you know, uh, this or that. It didn't matter. I have a responsibility to them. And when God calls us as fathers, He calls us as He puts a call upon our life, a focus, a particular people to serve for the rest of our days. I remember a long time ago whenever I answered the call to preach, that's what we called it in our circles. Um, struggled with it for some time, about a year. Really had issues with committing to it. I was just, just wasn't my thing, you know. I just was, I mean, I, I mean, I was in this church and God was just using the preaching of God's word and just sanctifying and making me more like himself. And, and Mandy and I, we were just engaged in whatever ministry we could be a part of. And God was just growing us spiritually. It was just, it was just amazing what God was just accomplishing in our lives apart from ourselves through the preaching and the ministry there at the church. And over about a year, man, I really struggled with with um, what I was going to do with my life. I had I had this plan to go into medicine. I had this plan to you know become a doctor. I had this plan to just make a, a life for myself and for my wife and for my children because I never had that. I grew up in the projects. I mean, we grew up on welfare and food stamps. And I had this idea of where I was going. And over about a year, man, I just struggled um, with what God was wanting me to do. And there was just this desire being cultivated in me um, to just preach His Word and and eventually, I just submit to that and yielded to that call on my life. I didn't know exactly what that meant or all that, all that, that was going to be entailed in that. But, but I, this is what God wants me to do, and I was convinced of it. And I went to my pastor who already knew. I never talked to him about it, but he was on the same page. Um, and I was looking for some affirmation and just see if this is something I should do and, and whether he affirmed it or not in the church, you know, would, um, would agree with that. You know, I didn't want to be... Um, self-exalting or glorify myself. I, I, I get a lot of things wrong, and maybe I got that wrong. Um, so I went to him, and I asked him, and he affirmed it. And I don't remember everything uh, according to that, that conversation, but, but there's one thing that was just evidently clear that I just can never forget. He looked at me, and he said, Son, if you do this, now you're different. You're different. I didn't know what he meant really at the time, but he went on to elaborate in not so many words. Um, you know, this is a calling that God has placed upon your life. And if you're going to fulfill it, there's certain expectations and requirements that, 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 that other men won't have, you know, there's going to be days whenever they go out on a Friday night and a Saturday, you're not going to be able to, you're going to need to be in the word, son, you know, they're going to go off and they're going to do other things. 
You know, they're going to they're gonna spend their lives and, and it's not inherently evil what they do, but because you have committed to this and God has called you to this and you've yielded to this, you're different. Not that you're better. You know, you're not holier than anyone else, but you're different. You know, God is setting you aside for something. And what that means is that along the way, son, you're going to have to lay along, you're going to have to lay aside a lot of things. Things that you wanted to do, plans that you may have had, you know, things that you loved along the way. Like it's it's not for you anymore, and I've learned that that there were a lot of things along the way that I had to lay aside because this is what God required of me. This is what God desired for me, and and the same is true of me when I became a father. You know that when there is a liberty and a freedom in in singleness. Paul even argues that in First Corinthians chapter number seven, doesn't he? He says, I think it would be better for you if you were single. Why? Because then you could give yourself wholly, wholesale to the ministry. But whenever you take to yourself a wife, when you take to yourself children, um, there is responsibility laid upon you that now you must give yourself over to that young man. There are some things that you just won't be able to do anymore. There's places that you can't go, and there's friends that you shouldn't hang out with anymore, and there's activities that aren't inherently evil, but God has given you a mandate to love your wives, to die for her daily, and to commit yourself to the discipleship of your wife and children. You know what that means? You know what that looks like? It looks like a lot of days where I work tirelessly, and, I, and then I go home, and I just give more work to the, to the ministry that God has called me to my wife. I don't get a lot of vacations. I don't get a lot of time away. I don't get a lot of hobbies. You know, people ask me that all the time. What do you like to do in East Tennessee? What are your hobbies? I have none. Zero. I have things that I would love to do. I have things that are places that I would like to go. But at the end of the day, balancing church and a career and my, and, and, and my wife and children, like that's all that I have time for. And I'm fine with that. I'm happy with that. That is what God has called me to. And that has been the most glorious journey in all my life. Because it's there that I found God and, and His presence in many ways that I would have never found them. That this is what fatherhood is. This is what I'm saying. That fatherhood is a calling. It's a commitment. It's a calling to, to certain people. It's a calling to lay aside certain things for what God requires of you and what God desires of you. And there God meets you. It's a call to, to be a certain type of man. That's what fatherhood is. That's what husband being a husband is. It's not only called to a service, but it's called to be a certain type of man. First Timothy chapter number three and first uh, Timothy three verses three through five. Um, give and on. And prior to that, you see the qualifications there of an elder that are laid out. And you may be thinking, hey guys, I'm not an elder, so those qualifications don't um, um, don't apply to me. But that's not. Reality at all, man. What the elder is supposed to be is to be the example of what all other men should be. It's a high calling. It's an impossible calling. I read through and I teach through the qualifications and, and sometimes I write up my resignation. You know, It's a high place, but it's a good place. And can I tell you that this has been the place that has caused me to persevere all my life. I remember that. I remember that, I remember that conversation with my pastor. I remember him telling me those things and I remember, and I can tell you that, that it's been one of the most sanctifying journeys that I've ever been on. It has protected me from so much foolishness and destruction. I read these qualifications and it pushes me on. 
You know, I think about the Apostle Paul um, who was running a race and he buffeted himself. He died to himself. Why? So that he would not be disqualified. I regularly go back to these. I regularly look at these. I think about the high calling of the pastoral role. And you know what it does? It keeps me from going places and doing things and putting myself in, in areas and places that would be damaging to the ministry, the cause of Christ, and bring a reproach upon the name of Jesus. And that's what the call of a father should do for you, men. You know? That there is a high price and a high calling for men who have, who have committed themselves to their wives and have committed themselves to children, who have brought them into this world and have committed themselves to disciple those children. It should protect you. When you think about the high calling and what weighs upon you and the commitment there and, and literally the fact that your children hang in the balance upon whether you're obedient or not, it should keep you and guard you from all sorts and sense of immorality and ungodliness. It should protect your home. That's what I read here, you know. I come back to this often, and it keeps me on task. You read in verse number 4, one who, what, what is an elder supposed to be? He's supposed to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his, house, his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And what you see here is you see that the elder is to be the example of the type of man. So he's to be a type of man that is to lead, and he is to be that type of man in which all men should strive to be. That an elder is required to rule his house well. Not only that, what should be his desire? It should be to rule his own house well. That's his task, to rule, to manage and the Scripture says to superintend, to provide over, to oversee with the power of direction, with authority, to take care um, as a military officer would with men. Who? His own household. All that are under his roof. Whether it's one child or ten children. Whether it's a wife and you're single or not. You, you care, you're to care for that house. In this particular passage, we're speaking of a relationship, particularly of a father with his children. There's a type of man that this man ought to be. Thus, by implication, this is the type of man that you ought to be, man. That you are to lead well. That you are to manage skillfully and exemplary. That you are to rule the affairs of your home in regard to your wife and children in such a way that you could commend that pattern to others. That's the idea. Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Follow their faith. Consider the outcome of their conduct. First Peter 5, 2, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Why be examples so they will follow? Man, this is not my standard. This is our standard. This is my standard, but this is also our standard. How will we evaluate this? How will we know whether it's true or not? There has to be some objective standard. Well, the objective standard is the conduct of his children. So we conclude that there is a conduct of a man's child or children that can qualify or disqualify him from the office. Meaning, not that he's lesser of a Christian, he simply shows himself deficient in this area for a time or forever and isn't an example to follow. Thus, he should not exercise authority in the area. He should focus on his family and shore up areas of weakness or sin in his marriage and or parenting until he's qualified and mature enough to do that, to take that position of authority. 
What conduct evidence is a man is qualified? He keeps his children under control with all dignity. The idea of having or keeping here is the idea of a matter of course or point. It's not, a, it's, it's not the idea of managing well here and there with periods of exemplary character and periods that are not. It speaks of a constant habit of life, keeping his children under control with all dignity. The term dignity signifies a character of a person which entitles them to respect from others. That which calls out the esteem of others. This is not the goal. He doesn't do it for dignity. He doesn't do it for esteem. He doesn't do it for respect. But because he does it, there's a nobility to it. And other people look. And they, he earns the respect and the authority through servant leadership. Not only to his family, but to others. That there is about the father a nobility of mind consisting of, consisting of a high sense of propriety, truth, and justice with an abhorrence for sinful action. It conveys a sense of true honor and excellence that gains respect in the submission of others. I think the Proverbs refers to it in many ways, and one of the ways is, is to win the heart of the son or the heart of the daughter, we could say. That he carries himself in such a way that respect is, and anybody that's worth their salt is the only appropriate response. Here's the recognition that um, his children should be under control. Um, other fathers live their lives in such a way as to not command their respect with their life, not to draw out submission or obedience, but not this man. I read some time ago a man, um, a quote, and I've read some of this quote to some of you men, um, but it was a quote by Robert E. Lee Jr., which from what we can tell, he was a Christian. And his son reports about his life to him and um, writes this of his father. He says, From that early time I began to be impressed with my father's character as compared with other men. Every member of the household respected, revered, and loved him as a matter of course, but it began to draw on me that everyone else with whom I was thrown held high held him in high regard. At 45 years of age, he was active, strong, and handsome as he had ever been. I never remember him being ill. I presume he was indisposed at times, but no impressions of that remain. He was always bright and gay with us little folk, romping, playing, and joking with us. With other children, he was just as companionable. And having seen him join my elder brothers and their friends when they would try their uh, powers at high jump put in their yard, for two younger children he petted a great deal and our greatest treat was to get him into his bed in the morning and lie close to him, listening while he talked to us in his bright, entertaining way. The custom we kept until I was 10 years old and over. Although he was so joyous and familiar with us, he was very firm on all proper occasions, never indulged us in anything that was not good for us, and exacted the most implicit obedience. I always knew that it was impossible to disobey my father. I felt it in me. I never thought why, but was perfectly sure when he gave an order that it had to be obeyed. The father's character, well-rounded conduct, excellence as a man, created a respect and a reverence and mo that motivated one to duty and obedience. Not a tyrannical shouting of orders, not this demanding of respect, not his high-handedness, not provoking his children to wrath. It was his exemplary manhood that cultivated a dignity where Robert E. Lee's son says, I knew that I could never disobey my father. From the negative side, the lack of proper management of the home life disqualifies 
a person from leadership in the church. It's clear from Paul's teaching that to Timothy and Titus that a man can be disqualified because of his children. Children that are to be in submission with all reverence, to obey, to, to have gravity, to respect and honor for their father, not accused of in dissipation or insubordination. What that means is a dissolute life, a, a wastefulness, an extravagance, a, an unruly, disobedient um, child that cannot be subjected to control. It is used in um, Hebrews 2 like this. You put all things in subjection under your feet. He left nothing that is not put under him. It's the idea of the, um, the insubordination there. Christ has put all things under his feet. There's not anything that's not. And that a child of a man like this is he's to be the type of man that commands respect, not only with his voice, but with his life. That's earning dignity and winning the heart of his wife and his children. That they are to be faithful, it says, believing. Um, that they are to be both in submission, discipline, and in order. But at the same time, not having to be brought under a tyrannical regime. That men, this is the heart of our task. I know it's taken us 45 minutes to get to Ephesians chapter number 6. But we've talked about really that fatherhood. What's demanded of us. That's the idea in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 4, that that term father is pregnant with much more than what we um, often understand. That there's a commitment there, there's a covenant there, there's a responsibility there, there's a calling there, there's a requirement there that when you enter into these relationships that, that, that you enter into those things. You enter into a service of dying for the rest of your life to serve your wife as well as your children. And here we see how we are to serve our children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That's the fullness of the command. It's flashed out in a number of ways, but the idea is that you are to bring them up in the training and in the admonition of the Lord. The term there, bring them up, is a word that means to nourish. As a man nourishes his body, they are to provide everything needed for life, men. That you are the great provider of the home. Whether it's sustenance, growth, and well-being. That that's your task. That when a child is conceived, even when a child is in the womb, you're to care for that child in a comprehensive way. You're to care for that child to the best of your ability to safely bring that child into the world and assume the totality of the care. That this is an action that is performed. This is something um, that we do. The children are not automatically or self-sufficient. They, uh, they don't grow up on their own and competent, contributing members of society or the church. It doesn't happen without initiative. They're born into this world dependent upon another creature. And that's you, mothers, fathers. Why? Proverbs 22.15 tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Proverbs 29 says a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. What's the point of those passages? Well, Proverbs 29.15 says the rod and, the, and rebuke give wisdom. And then he ends with that, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 22.15 ends with this. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. From what? From the foolishness that is bound up in his heart. The idea is this, is that, that men and women, you and myself, uh, not children alone, but all children that have ever been born into this world have been born in with a sinful nature. Um, uh, Psalm chapter 51 
Um, teach, David teaches us that, that from his, uh, from his mother's womb, um, Psalm 58, that he came out with a wicked heart. That in sin, he says in Psalm 51, um, he was conceived in his mother's womb. The idea is, is that with a lack of teaching, a lack of rebuke, a lack of correction, a lack of training in righteousness will leave a child in foolishness. We're not to allow our children to bring up themselves. We're not to raise them up in an atmosphere of complete freedom, allowing them to make their own choices and decisions, do their own thing, freedom of expression with no restraint, learning when and how they want to. And this is a command. He's given them to us and us to them to bring them up. By virtue of the position you and I if you've determined to have children, are duty-bound to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what you're going to be judged on. That's what it means, in some sense, to be a father. That's the nature of the task. It's all-inclusive in the text. He says, them. Them. It refers to the children. Bring who up? Bring them up. In the totality of their being, bring them up. Bring them up socially, bring them up mentally, bring them up intellectually, bring them up emotionally, bring them up physically, bring them up in their desires, bring them up spiritually. That's the idea. The totality of this little human being you are to bring up. Children have a soul and children have a body and children have a mind and children have an emotion. When they enter into the world, when given long enough, um, they will cultivate the fruit of disobedience um, and sin. That's us. That's who we are. You know, It's like a tree that's planted. You know? it's, it's hard to see in the beginning the di and differentiate between a, 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 an apple tree and a pear tree when it's a sapling or, a, or an oak tree. You know, And that's what people do. They look in the world and they see this thing that is innocent and you can't identify it necessarily. But given long enough, it will bear its fruit. You will be able to tell without a doubt that it's an apple tree that's cultivated long enough. And that's the idea with children. Children given long enough will cultivate the fruit of sinfulness that we all do. Examine your own life. Think about yourself. Given long enough, the heart of a sinful man, um, the heart of a sinful man will manifest itself. That's who we are. So we are to learn within the home how to be what God requires of us. Men, you need to know what God requires of you so you can tell your, your little men what God requires of them. And you facilitate the health and prosperity of the entirety of their being so that they can fulfill that responsibility um, later in life. But that's why we do these things. That's why we do these things. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Children are a blessing from the Lord. This is a, an age-old expression, scriptural, that expresses how God should and how we should view children, that they are a blessing. Um, and we could go back to Genesis 1.28, that this was the purpose of Adam and Eve. They were to raise up a generation after them, image bearers of God to send across the earth. Psalm 127 verses 4 or 5 kind of um, commentate a little bit on that. They say, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. And blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Isn't that phenomenal? The children are referred to as arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. 
You know, and I think we look at that oftentimes and we, and we reflect upon the blessing that a child is. But I don't, I, I don't know if this says so much about the children um, as much as it says about what we are. Children are arrows, but we are those that wield them. We do so for a purpose, with intention. They themselves have been fashioned for a purpose, and the purpose is driven by war to be fought. The arrow is the passive object in the illustration. The arrow doesn't shape itself. The arrow doesn't shoot itself. The arrow doesn't aim itself. The arrow doesn't necessarily know what the target is. Um, it is the warrior who acts upon the arrow. It is the warrior um, who pulls back the pressure. It is the warrior who, who, who trains with strength and skill um, to put the arrow in the bow, in, in the bow and to, to aim at the target. Archery is not a simple game to this man. Or at least it shouldn't be. A man that has, this is a man that has a legitimate understanding of war and a healthy fear um, that will take the battle seriously, conscientiously fashioning this arrow, training immensely and aiming with precision. Why? Because the outcome of the battle matters to him. And no doubt there's lousy soldiers out there with no discipline, no desire to train and undermine the seriousness of what's happening around them. We're not at war. They'll deny the responsibility, saying their responsibility, saying it's, 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 it's nothing they signed up for or wanted to do. I can remember saying that. Not necessarily in regard to family, but in other things. Being a part of something and then someone coming looking for leadership and then you say, I didn't sign up for that. This is, that's, that's, that's most men's com that's commentary on most men today in their, in their families. I didn't sign up for this. Those men die in war quickly or they live in cowardice. And when they do shoot, they shoot aimlessly or randomly and people get hurt. Their arrows waver and falter and finally succumb to the gravity of the world with no mark in sight. So what is the target, men? Where are we aiming to the glory of God? That's why God gave you children. That you would aim to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, training them um, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, for the glory of God. And human beings were created for that very reason. Thus, if a human being exists in your home and you have authority over them, then your aim is the glory of God. If that is the case, then this is the reason they exist. If this is the reason they exist, what do you think the responsibility and work of parents is? If that's the reason, it's to teach them about God. His desire for them to love and to obey Him. It is to teach them that they were created for His glory. It is to teach them of His holiness, His character, His righteousness, His, um, His attributes, His mercy, His grace. It is through the work of the family that within little hearts are often born the love of God, a vision for God, a burden for the world, and true Christian character in the fruit of the Spirit. You and I as a family unit should realize that it is within this unit that the glory of God often hinges. God's glory hinges upon the family unit. Also, it is overly apparent in Scripture that families that honor Him are blessed for generations. Families that don't are cursed for generations. What's the purpose? Does it really matter? Psalm chapter number 78. I would encourage you to read on your own at some point. Um, the psalmist gives us somewhat of an idea there 
of what we're to, our responsibility to our children. Particularly verse number uh, three, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us, talking about the, the works of God. We will not hide them from our children or from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works, and He has done. And He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. That the generation to come, why? That the generation to come might know them. The children who would be born, that they may rise and declare them to their children. That they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. That what you see within Psalm chapter number 78, it should be the goal of every Christian father. That he should learn the Word of God. That he should know the Word of God. That he should not forget the works of God. That he should understand the character of God. And that one of his primary duties is to communicate that truth to his children. Why? So that they too might set their hope in God. Man, we're aiming for conversion here. Alright, that's the target. We're aiming for the training up of our children um, in, in every realm of life to their whole soul with the Word of God and the way that we care for them and the way that we care for them even relationally, the way that we um, uh, communicate with them and relate to them. Everything that we do, we do not to provoke them to wrath or resentment or incur a bitterness in them because they have a lack of respect because we've abused the authority that God has given us, but we take upon Christ upon ourselves. We preach the Word of God and declare it from the time they come out of the womb until they turn 18 and leave the home. And we, cult we, we, we strive to cultivate this tenderness of heart and this submissive spirit so that when the gospel comes forth, God uses it as a means to bring him to themselves. So it's not just didactic teaching or an academic exercise. It's every area of life. It's teaching them to obey. It's teaching them at every area of life, bringing them up to the next point from the time they exit the womb. You know, it's understanding their needs and where they need to be next. It's, it's, it's instructing them. It's, it's, it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. That the Word of God is inspired. It's God-breathed. For what reason? For instruction, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for training that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. That's the idea. That you are to, to train them up in the way that they ought to go. You are to, to attempt to cultivate an obedient and a submissive spirit at the earliest of ages that, that, that when the gospel goes forth, God uses it as a means of grace um, to, to, to bring it to life in their hearts and in their souls. We're aiming for the fact that they would hope in God. That's the idea. That's the hope. That's, that's why, why do you train your children? Because God, God commands me. But it's also because I desire for God to save them. You mean all six of them? Yes, all six of them. <laughs> to the glory of God. Every one of them. Like That's my aim and that's my hope. I thought you believed in sovereign grace. You know? God loved Jacob and He didn't love Esau. <clears throat> yeah. I'm also convinced, though, that God generally, providentially uses the people of God through evangelism and particularly families of God to promote and cultivate generational blessing that results in the conversion of our children. This is a means of grace that God uses. 
providentially and that he often operates graciously through, um, through the means of families. See, I don't know about that. You know, there's too many hyper-Calvinists out there who don't believe in evangelism. Why? Because God's sovereign. They don't have a clue what the Scripture says. Um, that God uses these things as means, evangelism, to bring the world to Himself. And it's the same with children. If you have the idea that, that it doesn't matter what I do, my children will be saved or won't be saved, you're a fool. Let me just say, I don't know how to say it. Maybe I should be a little more gracious. You're a fool. Um, because God's Scripture is, the Word of God is very clear that you as parents have any, even not only a temporal, but an eternal influence upon your, your children's lives. Um, and I don't have time to go into everything. But um, in Proverbs chapter number 22 and verse number 6, you read these words. Sorry, I'm still in the book of Psalms. Forgive me. Proverbs 22 and verse number 6, you read these words. And you're probably familiar with these words. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now I have to burst some people's bubbles here. This may not be a positive promise. You know, historic Christians took this not as a promise, actually, on large part, but as a warning. Because the text can also be faithfully rendered. Let a child go in the way that he goes. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. You see, against popular belief, children, again, are sinners. They're born with a radically depraved nature. They are a little tree. Again, the nature is bound up in the seed and cultivated long enough it bears the fruit of evil. What kind? The kind in accordance with its nature. And it's hard, to, again, to tell the difference between the two. And there are droves of parents today that are losing their children to the influence of the world at ages 16, 17, and 18, and they can't figure out why. They don't understand. It's uh, because they took little Johnny and little, uh, little Susie to Sunday school and children's church from the time that they were born. They made a profession of faith, and they were in uh, VBS, and they made a profession of faith at age 6, yet at age 18, they're living like hell. Well, what happened? You know, this is the testimony of most Christians today. 85 to 90 percent of, of professing Bible-believing Christians are losing, losing their children at the age of 18. Why? Never to return. Um, I think it's because they've missed this point. They are to train their children up in the way that they ought to go. That they are not to leave their children to themselves or to other people as their primary educators. God places the onus upon us. And that when left to themselves, that's the idea. The idea is that when left to themselves to do what they desire to do, that when they are old, it is going to be practically impossible um, to change them. And that's what you see throughout the Scriptures. That's what you see in 1 Samuel chapter number 3 with Eli and his sons. That's what you see um, as, as uh, th there is a condemnation of Eli that he did not restrain his sons. And thus, they entered into idolatry and, and false temple worship and, 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 and adultery. That's what you see in David's life. Um, you see that Adonijah and you see that Absalom, um, you see these clear condemnations of, 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 of the lack of restraint of, of David as a parent. You see um, in 1 Kings chapter 13, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, committed a severe violation against the second commandment. And what do you find just two chapters later? His son following in his pattern. 
That, that there is a fundamental law, one commentator writes, of humanity, that, that we never send to ourselves alone. Man, it matters what you do as a father. See, I'm just leaving it up to the Lord. No, it matters what you do as a father. He goes on to say, every generation sets the agenda for tomorrow's world. We show our children how to live, and by passing on our idols, we demonstrate our priorities. All our sin, listen, all our sin affects others, and it affects our children particularly. Our idolatry is whatever sphere, in whatever sphere from money-making and drug-taking is passed on to our children with a vice-like grip. And this morning in Exodus 20, verse 5, he's speaking about Exodus 20, verse 5, in the giving of the law. And what you have within the giving of the law is this promise attached to it um, of generational sin and generational blessing. This is a scriptural principle. Verse number 5, you read this, You shall not bow down nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the generation to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." What you find, and I'm convinced there that the thousands is, is, is in reference to the generations. That those that are wicked and evil have implications of their family for three to four generations. But those who love God, keep His commandments, live in the grace of Christ, and seek to honor Him through raising their children, through, through, through carrying on a life and, and a career, loving their wives and living to the glory of God, that God blesses those people to the thousands of generations. That that's the idea. Um, he goes on to say that in Exodus 20 verse 5 is only a general statement, but it is a terrible warning that the superstition, idolatry, false religion, or no religion of the parents will be indelibly marked on their children so that the only the, only the power of a great God can erase it. This is a general statement. He doesn't always do this, but ordinarily He does. I mean, have you ever noticed that generally speaking, hard-hearted, unbelieving, unregenerate parents rear up hard-hearted, unbelieving, unregenerate sons and daughters? That what you find within Scripture as well as in history is that we produce our own kind. And that's true. That's true. That men, this should provoke us to faithfulness. That bringing our children to church is a good is a good start, but it's not enough. That this is just two hours a week, and as practical as it may be, it'll all be undone if our lives do not match it. In our disobedience, unless the Lord does a supernatural of work of grace in spite of us, our, that we will darken their hearts, we will shape their character, we will blind their eyes, and we will harden their little hearts through our hypocrisy. That's the idea. That's the idea. And the Lord comes in this text and points to what is probably the most important thing in our lives and says, men, if your own soul is not enough, then know this, that your wickedness will contribute to the wickedness of your sons. And you know the greatest, one of the greatest judgments, I think, on Eli and David is they had to watch their sons destroy themselves. Why? Because of their own sin and their lack of faithfulness, and their lack of restraining their sons. You know? I, and you, and I, t- I talk to men, and I see men, and I hear men, and I see the, the tears in their eyes, and I see the groan in their voice. They can't go back and they can't change it. You know, talk to an older man. He'll give you some wisdom. That, that all of his life, you know the thing that he would change? He said, I would work less, and I'd be with my children more. 
You know, I wish that I would have not got caught up in the idolatry of the world and not so many words, but I would have been there with my boys, you know, because by the time I've created the kingdom in which I can parent them, now they're already grown, you know, that, that, that it is common among men today to work and to work and to work to create this life, to give them a better life that you didn't have all the while. Um, they're grown, you know. And they don't carry the morals and they don't carry the values of the Father. Why? Because they were never trained by the Father. They were never taught by the Father. They were never there. And they didn't have a mother there either that would do the same. Um, and they have to watch their children self-destruct to the third and fourth generation. But at the same time here, there's a strong encouragement, man. Have you ever taken note as well that parents that are godly often have converted children. And that's just the grace of God. It's not because of anything that they inherently do. It's just by grace. That that's how God providentially works through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel, through the training up of children, through, 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 through just labor with them and to them. You know? Jeremiah 35, verses 18 and 19 speak of a man who's a Rechabite. Um, and it says this word, Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father. So what happened was is they had this, uh, this command to do. They had these traditions and they had the commandment that came down from their father and they had the opportunity to disobey or to obey. And what did they do? They, they obeyed the heritage of their father and this is the blessing upon it. It says, and they kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. That whoever loves me, Exodus 20, verse 6, and keeps my commandments will be a blessing to every generation or to thousands of generations. That ordinarily, not every time, he bestows his covenant love and mercy to children of those who love and keep his commandments by granting to their offspring the gift of faith and the gift of repentance and new hearts through by using them as a means to bring them to himself. That this should encourage you. It should scare you to death, men. To labor hard and to give yourself and commit yourself and fulfill um, that which God requires of you and bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But at the same time, I think there's encouragement here that those that are faithful, God often honors. Again, not every time, but it's not a 50-50 toss-up. Thus, I can be indifferent and apathetic. I am to give the rest of my life to my children, especially in the early days, to seek to honor God by training them up in the way that they should go. The Proverbs, um, Proverbs chapter number 19, I believe it is. And verse number 18 says, Chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. Men, chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. You know what that says? It says there's a window of opportunity of eternal influence in your children's lives, man, and you need to recognize it. I need to recognize it. I was thinking this week about life, and life's a vapor, isn't it? I mean, you're here one day and gone the next, and it's all full of toil and labor. Listen, if life's a vapor, what is your child's childhood? It's a fraction of a vapor. It's a small window. 
It's a little bit of time that you have to win their hearts, to give them the gospel, to shape their little hearts for the glory of Christ, to teach them how to obey, to discipline them, to correct them, to instruct them um, in righteousness, to bring them to the house of God, to teach them what the house of God is all about, to teach them what the worship of God is all about. That's what we're here for. You know? That's it. You know, I, I'm worried that we will create this culture of, 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 of a social event within our congregation of like-minded people. You know, We just come together so that we can socialize as adults and that we come together so that we can socialize, just socialize our children. That's not why you bring them to church, folks. You bring them to church. You do everything that you do to, to, to set their hope in God. You bring them to the house of God to teach them, to train them how to sit in the worship of God, how to, how to worship God Himself. And, and they often see that through example, um, that, that, that we bring them here. I think that one of the great dangers, one of the great dangers that I even fall into on many days is trying to win my child's heart. by giving them what they want. And the danger of that is, even within the context of the local church, is that you give them a different picture of church than what it ought to be. You know? That in many days I've brought my children to church and just let them you know, do whatever. And just to be with their friends. Proverbs is very clear. That the worst place that they could often be is with their friends. Why? Because what you have is foolishness raising up foolishness, right? I mean, Proverbs is very clear. I think it's Proverbs chapter 13 that speaks that if a young man is to be around wise men, why so that he can be wise? Um, bad company corrupts good morals. But even the church culture, I think we, we need to be more intentional about bringing our children to church to worship God, to train them up, and to get them around, around other godly men. Man, I would love nothing more than you to go up to my boys and shake their hands. Tell them to look you in the eye, show them how to be a man. You know, find opportunities outside of church for us to gather together so that my young boys can learn to be men. You know, to learn to serve, that they're here to serve, not to be served. They're here not to have a great time, but to, but, but to learn how to worship God and to serve others. I'm preparing them to spend the rest of their lives dying, men. Dying for their wives, dying for their children, dying for the cause of Christ. I need to prepare them. You need to prepare them. We need to be within our homes training them up to be men that are strong and to be men that will provide and men that will lead the way and men that will be the example. And, and then when we come to church, um, it's, not, it's, it's not necessarily a time for them just to have a great time. Neither is it you. It's a time to equip. It's a time to train. Um, it's a time to prepare them for life. And how are they going to do that? They're going to do that by learning to serve others, to be a blessing to others. I've thought about that a lot here lately. I've thought about it a little less indulging of our children like Eli and a little more training of our children 
to teach them what life is all about, to come to the house of God and to worship, to hear the Word of God, to receive the Word of God, to worship Him. And then, and then once we're, we're, we've, we've culminated in the worship of God and the preaching of God's Word and the prayer of the saints and the singing of the songs, and then at that moment, let's turn them to service. You know, teaching them how to live and to serve and to honor and to die for one another. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. This is not a consumer uh, we are not to have a consumer mentality. Man, we just we rake and rail upon the, the seeker sensitive movement because that's their MO. But we do the same oftentimes. We just brand it to a reformed camp, you know, and we come and give you exactly what it is that you need. Or what'll fix your um, your thirst or your hunger for that day. Listen, when we come to the house of God, we come to the house of God to worship Him. We come to the house of God to serve others. We don't come for the accolades. Don't come for the amens. Don't come for the um, for this or for that. We don't come for ourselves. And this life is not about you. This life is not about me. This life is not is not about our children. This life is about the glory of God, and this life is about others. Those are the two great commandments: love God, love one another. Are we training our children to do that? Is that what this is for? Because if it's not. then we're just self-exalting idolatrists. You know? We need to be in every area of life, man, training our children up in the way that they ought to go, and there's only a time for it now. Now's the time. You say, I, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. Come talk to me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to refocus. You know, I'm convinced that if all I ever give my time to now is, 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 is the preaching of God's Word um, on the Lord's Day and the training of men, then I will have had a good life. You know? Um, because we cannot be here to facilitate um, the lack of fulfillment of responsibility. You know? If anything ever gets in the way of that, in the, in the, and that's why we don't have a lot going on after if you guys get off work, you know, I know some churches are very program oriented. Some churches are doing a hundred different things. And I think, man, they need to be with their families. They need to be training up their children. They need to be engaged with one another. And if they are coming to something, then they should come as families. And it's hard. It's difficult, isn't it? To bring children with you to, to, to church events or to over to people's families or over to people's houses, you know? You know why it's hard? Because a lot of those people haven't trained their children. That's why it's difficult, and that's why we don't pursue that, because it's too hard. But if regular training happened within the home or even within the church or, or here and there, we utilize those moments and those environments as agents to train our children to teach them how to serve. You know, when we go over to other families' churches, you know, how can we, or over to other families' houses, how can we and my, my children be a blessing to you? How can we serve here? When we're coming to church functions and things, oftentimes they'll just disperse and go play outside. How can we get them serving uh, one another and serving the older men and the older women? You know, And how can we get them in Titus chapter 2, the older men teaching the younger men and the older women teaching the younger women if the younger men and the older men are never together? We have to cultivate these environments and understand why these environments exist. 
and to teach and to train them up and trust that the Lord, be encouraged that the Lord blesses faithfulness and ordinarily He uses those things as a means to bring your children to Himself. And men, we only have a few days. I mean, look at some of you. You're giving children away. It goes quick, doesn't it? And we've got to give it everything that we have while there is hope. While there is hope. If they're in your home, there's still hope. Let's go. Let's train. Let's, let's, let's give ourselves over to them, to the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, to win their hearts, to be that man, to exercise that, 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 that display, that dignity and that character um, which, which commands respect and, 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 to, and our wife, that our wives may know and our children may know that we are there to serve them, that our authority is, is born in that and out of that. But at the same time, it's a true authority where we lead them by example where they ought to go, thus we ought to be the men that we desire them to be. And that's why in Deuteronomy 6, uh, before the command to teach your children is given, it is a command to love God with all your heart. So men, do you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? Because that will be one of the greatest blessings to your children. And upon that will be built the verbal instruction, the academia of it. Again, I'm not in any way saying that you have the ability to save your children. I'm just begging you to be faithful to God and trust God um, that He ordinarily operates that way. So be encouraged. But at the same time, it should just scare us to death to think that through our neglect and apathy, we'll have to watch our children destroy themselves. So men labor and be encouraged. Work hard. Love your wife and children. Go to work. Serve, come home. Serve them and do it for your life. And die a happy man, blessed in the Lord, because you truly are blessed. That would be a blessing. I gave my life to this church. Just preaching on the Lord's Day. Raising six children in the Lord. Giving them away with the intent of them serving Christ throughout the nations. That would be a blessed life, wouldn't it? No great pomp, no great circumstance, no man will remember my name. But I pray my children do for the glory of God. That's what's been on my heart. I know I went much longer than I should have. But I worry about your children. Some days I worry about mine. It's time for us to be men. It's time for us to be men. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ. Father, we praise you for the um, blessing it is to know you. It's hard. It's hard, Lord. It's good. It's glorious. It's a blessing. It really is. It's hard because on a lot of days, Father, I have to die. It's painful. But you always bring me back to life. <laughs> it's glorious. You're so patient and kind, aren't you? You're so gracious and merciful in Christ. But at the same time, Father, you're stern. You're to be feared. You demand respect. 
but at the same time, it's not tyrannical. Just your presence commands it. Father, would you help me to be like that? Would you help me to love my wife, Father, like Christ loved the church? Would you help me to love my children, Father? Would you help me to devote my rest of my life to them quickly to be forgotten? God, would you save them? Every one of them? All the children of this church, Lord? What a blessing they are. God, when the time is right, would you cultivate in their hearts just a submissive spirit? Would you bless the families just to, to toe the line, Father, and just to hold the rose and to, to stay on task and to persevere when it's hard? I know it's hard to discipline children, especially multiple. Father, to instruct them in the way that they ought to go, to teach them, to train them. Father, church is hard. Uh, would you help them to persevere? Would you help them to labor long? Father, would you help them to understand that, that um, would you comfort their souls, that, Father, this is honoring to you, this is glorifying to Christ, and they can only do it in the power of the Spirit, so help them labor hard and labor well, Father. Um, God, help our men to understand the responsibility that God's given them to raise their children, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, not to provoke them to wrath, but to be fathers, to be like you, our Heavenly Father. Father, would you encourage our hearts to just um, to, to, to stay faithful, that on that day, Father, we can say when the work is done that we were. God, we need you in all this because it's hard. It's difficult on most days. It's impossible, to be honest with you. But um, you're just so gracious to us, Father, and patient with us. And just, we know that you will continue to be. Father, in the midst of it, would you just continue to pour out grace? Let us know that you're there. And use us, Father, for your glory. And, um, and often, Father, save our children. Often, Father, even today, God, would you take the gospel to the depths of the heart of a little one, Father, if they don't know you? Would you bring to their hearts the reality, bring to light the reality, Father, of their sinfulness and their need of Christ's atonement? Christ died on their behalf. Would you give them the faith to believe? Would you help them, Father, to repent? Would you help them to see their necessity of you even this day? Father, we need you again in this because only you can accomplish it to help us to be the men, Father, that you desire for us to be. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.